Well, good morning. Good morning from home again. Nice to be home again. It has been quite the week. Um, it is 5.55 in the morning. I've been up for the last hour and a half on the coffee. Uh, I've been been launching software. I've been traveling. I've been speaking. I've been doing a ridiculous amount of media stuff as well. I want to talk about that today because it's been some some fascinating things. Let's just say that. Now, getting my mind a little bit back on track. Uh, number of things, number of things. So first of all, I hope my audio is now a lot better. So I was having that problem with like the whirring sound or whatever it was in the background. And I tried many different ways to fix it. I believe I have now fixed it. Now here's how this works. I've got my Focusrite Scarlett digital analog converter on the desk over here. I've got my PC here. Now, normally there was a USB-C cable. It goes around the back here, around the back of the desk, into the back of the PC. I've done a very high-tech thing. I've got a shorter USB cable, USB-C, out of the back. It goes to here. It goes into a USB-C to USB-A adapter. That goes into a USB-A theme female to female plug which goes into a USB A to USB C adapter into another USB C cable <laughs> trying to get all this right around to here into a USB C to USB A adapter and then into the front of the computer thus fixing the noise. <laughs> now type V says audio sense be only left side for me. Okay now I'm glad you raised that. So let me just have a look at my settings here because one of the things that I've been trying to uh, do here is play around with all sorts of different possibilities. We're in mic audio. Let's go to mono and now close that. Now, who is this? Ty E. Tell me if, and Frank, if that is improving things. So part of the reason why it's doing that is I had some very, very good help from someone who was sending me extensive <laughs> emails trying to troubleshoot this. And uh, in amongst that, he said, look, it could be that you've got sort of uh, one channel is your primary mic and one channel might be your secondary mic there. And even though you've got it turned down, it's getting some interference or something like that. So one of the things that we tried was actually just isolating the channels. Uh, now, that was all very high tech. It was my non-high tech way of joining all the USB cables together, which I think has fixed things. Now, OK, thank you for the confirmation there that that's working. I didn't have to do it this way, but I just could not find a long USB-C to USB-A cable. So I joined it all together. It's all digital. It's all meant to meant to work. I think so long as it's not too long. So anyway, I reckon there was some interference somewhere, maybe towards the back of the computer. That's the best thing I can come up with. But look, who knows? It's uh, Once you get into that space of like trying to fix... Really, I'm trying to tighten up my screws and my mic so it stops dropping. That space of really screwy audio stuff that's very, very hard to nail down. It is just an absolute time suck. And I did not have any fun at all doing any of this. So I think what I'm going to do next is get behind the PC and try and just change the position of that other cable. See if that makes any difference. Otherwise, I really would just buy a long, <laughs> long USB-C to USB-A and run it around the back. Right. Where were we? Sponsor. Let's talk about sponsor before I jump into other things. There's just a huge, huge, huge amount of stuff this week. And I do definitely need to caffeinate a bit more at the moment. Okay, sponsor this week is Veronis again. One of my, uh, I would say one of my longest term, most prevalent sponsors. 
Reduce your SAS blast radius, data-centric security for AWS, G-Drive, box sales for Slack and more. And as I've said many times before, Veronis is one of these sponsors I have spent a bunch of time with in person. We've created a bunch of training material as well. So that's uh, that's been good. I hope to do more of that with them in the future. They're talking about DatVantage Cloud, the new standard in cloud security. Limit SaaS attack service respond across cloud threats, normalize SaaS permissions and activity. Veronis has been really, really good at looking at where things are exposed that you might not know about. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff that got exposed today that shouldn't have. That just sounded much worse than what I meant it. I'll talk about another upcoming data breach as well. Jeez. Along those lines of exposure. Okay. In the comments here, <laughs> Peter says, Troy is a Rube Goldberg audio cable. Yeah, that's what it feels like. And like I was, I was trawling through. I've got like all these boxes of cables, right? So this is, and they're fairly neatly organized. This is my USB box. And I'm going through here, like looking at all the different possible cables I have of all these variations of USB, and I'm like, there must just be a long USB-C cable somewhere. And then I'm like raiding the kids' machines and seeing what I can find. And eventually I figure out what is missing from my kit is USB-A to USB-C adapters. So I just went on Amazon, ordered a bunch of those, and now I can make whatever cables and connectors I want. But yeah, it is a bit of a messy thing. Camfly CH says, perhaps you should get some expensive audiophile USB snake oil cables. I mean, this is the funny thing, isn't it? I've got a, it, it is a really nice looking cable. <laughs> it's just got like a braided outer, which is, pre well, it's not present, presently plugged into my DAC, was in my DAC. And it's the, like the, the shitty cheap ones with all the connectors that seems to be working at the moment. Daphne says, feels like home when hearing the Aussie accent. I'm from Norway. I've been living and traveling in Australia for years, been to all states and territories. I will be back in Norway. I'll be in Norway two weeks from now, less than two weeks from now. So that that is exciting. I'm, I'm actually like really, really genuinely excited about that. Okay, other things, other things. Jeez, where to start today? Canberra, wow, okay. Now, for those of you from other places, Canberra is a little bit like our Washington, D.C., where it's somewhere you put all the politicians, but it's probably not the first place on your list to go for a holiday. This week I did go to Canberra and I had, uh, oh man, I just had a whirlwind few days. So many months ago, <laughs> I got an invite from the Australian Federal Police to talk about cyber during Scams Awareness Week, which is what we've just had. Now, that seemed like a nice idea because they're good people and they do a lot of amazing stuff, not least of which with the issues at the moment, which is, well, I'm going to leave the Medibank stuff till the very end because it's just a massive, massive story. So it was kind of, um, the, the, the timing was kind of funny. So I, I got contacted before the Optus data breach. Uh, by the time I got a chance to respond, Optus had already happened. And I just remember replying to the guy saying, look, you know, funny, there's a lot of stuff to talk about now, isn't there? So, yeah. And we started organizing logistics. And then the Medibank thing happens as well, which has inevitably consumed a huge amount of policing resources for all the reasons that we'll talk about a little bit later on. So it was kind of like, well, okay, we've got lots and lots and lots of stuff to talk about. So anyway, Charlotte and I went down to Canberra on uh, Tuesday. That was also the day that data from Medibank started being dumped online. Uh, again, I'm going to talk about that in a dedicated bit at the end of this uh, end of this podcast, vodcast, like oh, whatever it is. And 
we, we ended up in there with plans to do a whole bunch of touristy stuff. Uh, and without going into the details, um, ended up spending more time with like politicians and cyber people than what had been planned. But Really, really interesting stuff. Really interesting people. Um, managed to spend a bunch of time with uh, Kieran Martin as well, the founder of the NCSC in the UK, someone that, that I think we'd interacted with in the past but uh, but had not yet met in person. By pure coincidence, he was there at the same time as well as a bunch of other people from CyberCX, the company doing the incident response for Medibank, uh, and got to spend some time with them, which was just fascinating. Very, very lovely people. And again, I'll talk more about Medibank later on, but my experience with with the Gov folks uh, and some of the CyberCX leadership is also ex-government and ex-AFP. And also my experience then on Thursday with the AFP when I did do the, do the talk on the cyber things, everyone there is super nice and super switched on. Now, I've always said this, every time I've done anything like government or law enforcement related, Everyone I meet is the sort of person you want to go and have a beer with. And it has really reset my, I don't know so much my expectations, but what I think the general expectation out there, particularly within a little bit of a, I think it's fair to say, slightly paranoid security community. Uh, anyway, fantastic people. I went and talked a lot about different uh, scams and things that I'm seeing in data breach world. Uh, I gave away some stickers, <laughs> which was nice. It's nice to go physical places again and give away physical things. And just had an opportunity to talk about some of the things that, that I'm seeing uh, in the data breach land and some of the challenges we have as well. So particularly things like disclosure. Uh, it is an enormously challenging thing to do disclosure. Uh, and it's, it's good to be able to have conversations like that with the likes of law enforcement who do sometimes get involved in these events as well. So that was... Uh, that was a bit of a whirlwind, and at the same time, there's like this just this crazy amount of media attention because of Medibank. So I'm just like nonstop on the phone, uh, meeting camera crews and stuff in front of Parliament House and doing interviews there. Uh, camera crews in here again yesterday. Actually, <laughs> I'm doing this. You know when you see someone get interviewed on TV? Uh, and you know, like you, you know that that the camera is there wherever they are, uh, and you probably realise a lot of the time the the journalist is somewhere else; so they're not in the same place. So what often happens depends on on the show, but what usually happens is you've got one camera person comes out, lights camera and everything, and they say, "Don't look down the lens; look over there," because it's like you're looking at the reporter, and then the masses will never know the difference. You know, like it'll look normal. So anyway, we're out the front of Parliament House, uh, and the guy's like, "Okay, uh, Charlotte, go and stand there." And, and Troy's like, "Just just look at Charlotte like she's a reporter." And he starts asking these very serious questions uh, as it relates to a very very serious incident. And then you know when like you're looking at someone, and then someone just starts like can't help themselves to start laughing, and she's laughing, like not at the story or, or the incident, but just because I'm there trying to be serious, and I'm somehow trying to. Like talk about something really serious and look at my wife laughing at me. But the the thing's live. It's it's record like I can't I can't just say, Hey Charlotte, can you stop laughing? And I can't look away either because that's meant to be where like the magical invisible reporter is. So I'm somehow trying to like look over her shoulder at Parliament House while she's laughing and talk about this really serious thing just before going and talking to the federal police about the I was like, holy shit, how weird has my life gotten? <laughs> this is really strange. <laughs> mm. Anyway, 
It was a very positive experience uh, having that time in Canberra. We slept for 10 hours on Thursday night. Uh, it was just such a such an emotional drain, the whole thing. Positive stuff, positive. I might talk more about that later on. We actually got some nice photos of the AFP stuff, so I'll, uh, I'll try and find some stuff we can share. Other things on my list, Mastodon. Wow, this, uh, this Twitter thing has gotten interesting, hasn't it? So there has been a lot of discussion. I don't want to say exodus because I'm not quite sure that's the right word. A lot of discussion about going to Mastodon uh, because Elon. <laughs> now, in fairness, I'm enjoying watching Elon's tweets. I really am. And a part of the reason I'm enjoying it is that it is very, very evident that Twitter as a platform had some major, major problems. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that Elon is going to be like our Lord and Saviour for all things uh, Twitter problems. However, he does make some very good points. And and I have long not been an Elon fan because I think he says some pretty stupid shit sometimes. Um, cave divers in Thailand, uh, all sorts of other things that violate securities and exchange rules, like just weird, weird, weird stuff. But he does have some really good points here, and it is kind of entertaining to watch the trolling. I mean, to see the world's richest man with 105 million-something followers behave like my 13-year-old son sometimes, it's like, oh, it's kind of funny. So I was a bunch of stuff shaking up there. Um a lot of people saying, okay, we're going to go to Mastodon. Now, I don't know if they go to Mastodon or they just create an account on Mastodon and they have some chats over there and then they've still got the other one as well. So I did go and try to set up a Mastodon account, which eventually I got right. But you can sort of see why, in my humble opinion, it's not it's not a Twitter replacement. It is something that is a bit similar that some people will go to to have very specific discussions on very specific topics. But this whole idea of it being decentralized and topic specific, where, you know, there's, I've got it open in the tab over here, there is the uh, infosec.exchange Mastodon. Uh, and then there is the, the Mastodon for all these other things as well. Now, it's just been really funny to watch the conversations. And I think it was last weekend, so a week ago now, that I was just sort of tweeting some of the funny stuff that people were sharing about Mastodon or some of the funny memes, just trying to figure it out. And then you get other people come along and go, oh, it's just so simple. It's just like email where you have an account in different places and it's federated and it just, you know, you can send an email from here to there. Um, obviously, there's a bunch of people who have gone over to uh, Mastodon. I'm just looking at the list now. It has taken me some time. Here's Patrick Gray. But is it Patrick Gray? Because this is part of the whole problem, right? <laughs> like you're trying to figure out, is it legitimate or not? Um, when I say, is it legitimate, are these individuals the ones who say that? Which then leads us into this whole thing about Twitter blue and verified and stuff that Musk is obviously trying and then chucking out. Uh, I I think for me, like Twitter is is obviously some somewhere that has been enormously useful for me. And there's a solid following. And I'm going to keep doing the Twitter things and sharing stuff on the Twitter. Uh, I'll pop in on Mastodon, I think, every now and then and have a bit of a look. But yeah, I, I like the variety with the Twitter discussion. And I think this is one of the points that people were making when they said, look, you know, if, if you go to infosec.exchange, that's great. You can go and talk about the infosec stuff, but it's nice to absorb things from other places as well. And I know I saw someone um, someone tweeted and, and made a good point, <laughs> tweeted at Mastodon, 
and made a good point when they were going through the same process, which was, you know, they're, they're setting up a Mastodon account and or, or rather trying to find a Mastodon server. And they're looking at, you know, what are you interested in? Like tech, LGBT, um, cars, airplanes. And the guy's like, I, I like all of these things. Like, well, that's kind of what we did with Twitter, right? Anyway, we'll see. The, part of my problem was on infosec.exchange, which seems to be the de facto infosec place now, the Troy Hunt account was gone. And I was like, well, that's weird because that's not me. So uh, Jerry, who appears to run infosec.exchange, helped me get it back. Not because someone was maliciously squatting on it, but someone had registered it so that somebody else didn't register it. So they'd saved it for me. As they had on, I think, mastodon.social, someone else had saved it for me years ago. I do find that a bit odd because I would have thought either A, you'd, you'd register it and then you get in touch with me via another channel and go, hey, I saved this for you. Would you like it? Or B, you just get in touch with them in the first place and go, hey, you probably want to go and get that before someone else does. Either way, I have both of them now. And I don't know why I have the two of them and if I should just stick with the infosec.exchange one or the mastodon.social one. But I have both of them. Uh, so I've got the comments here. Frank says the trolling is golden. The troll, <laughs> Elon's trolling. It is funny. I, just, I can't help but laugh at it. I really can't. Shane says it's more of an insult to my son than anything. So one of my son's favorite things is uh, 3D printing QR codes that are Rickrolls. Come on. What's not funny about that? Every now and then we tweet one too. And, of course, people have to go and fit because if, if, if someone thinks that they've found something in a photo that you tweet that, that might not meant to be there, they'll have to go and figure it out. So might do a bit more of that. Peter says, if your chief privacy officer, chief compliance officer and CISO all quit in the same day, something is clearly wrong at Twitter. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I think what's happened with Twitter, and you know, Jack has sort of alluded to this as well, is it, it did obviously get somewhat un unsustainable. So the figures we've heard is losing $4 million a day. Now, that sounds like a lot of money to me. I don't know how much it is to a very large company, but it, it's obviously losing money. That was a big thing. We've seen Facebook cut a lot of people as well. And there, there is a bit of an uncomfortable space here where it's like, look, this is a business. And if the business continues to lose money, it's not sustainable. So you need to either up revenue or decrease costs. Uh, so how are you going to do that? Well, it's inevitably a bit of both. You know, if people have to pay their eight bucks a month or something for the check mark, well, that's the revenue bit. And if they cut heads, then that's the overhead bit. I, I get that. And I think that there is a degree of necessity to all this. Now, did he need to cut as many people as he could? Obviously, that, that hashtag about uh, love where you worked was kind of heartbreaking to read people's messages. There were there a lot of people who obviously loved being at Twitter and then they got cut. And... I was going to say it's it's sucky to lose your job. I was actually very, very happy when I lost my job at Pfizer. I've written about that before. But as I was sitting there and redundancies are getting handed out, I could see how other people around the room felt. So I understand that can be an enormously stressful thing for people. I think looking at, at both those organizations, Twitter and Facebook, clearly they did have a lot of bloat. Now, as for the folks at the top who then jumped of their own free volition, Maybe Elon's got it all wrong. Maybe they're 
sympathetic to their co-workers. Maybe they don't like the new leader. I, I, I don't know. I think there's probably a lot of different stuff there. But for what I do know, and this is something I saw at Pfizer many times in the corporate life, is that when there is a cost-cutting exercise, and that does happen to many organisations on a, seems like an almost regular cycle, it is very unsettling for, for many people, uh, including those that stay. Now, sometimes it's it's a necessity, uh, and it, it looks like in this case it was one of those things which which was a bit of a necessity. Look, time will tell. Look, we're all speculating here a little bit. I I'm not convinced that that Mastodon will come along and all the infosec people will just go there, and that will be the end of of infosec Twitter. I, I just think there's there's too many other things going on, on on Twitter. I also think it's it's a little bit uncomfortable to think about the dependency that you've gotten on one person running a Mastodon instance for all of this stuff, uh, particularly when we get to things like, if it, I haven't used Mastodon a lot. I assume there is some, oh, there is direct messaging. Um, Jerry's running that. <laughs> I don't know who Jerry is. He's got an avatar of a llama. He might be a very nice guy. But it does put a lot of dependency on on one person, on one location, on one instance that includes a whole bunch of uh, very potentially – like if I think about what's in my Twitter DMs, there's a lot of sensitive stuff in there, not necessarily from me but from people reaching out and saying, look, here's a data breach or we've seen this happen or whatever it may be. Now, Frank says, agree. Uh, it is not Twitter. But it ain't bad. I'm sure it's not bad. It's obviously attracting a lot of people. Mastodon is interesting from a technical perspective, but I'm afraid it won't cut it. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair comment. Uh, Shane says, say nothing of Eli Lilly, another big pharma company, losing 2.2% of its stock value because of Elon's opening up of blue checks to anybody with $8 and a troll <laughs> posing as them. Okay, All right. I had not heard that news. So someone has effectively impersonating... Uh, Eli Lilly by virtue of the blue check mark. Now, Neil says, anyone could copy your Twitter profile or other security accounts with the Twitter blue certified tick. And and obviously this is something that... <laughs> look, Elon made a comment to the effect of, we're going to try a bunch of stuff, a bunch of things won't work and we'll throw them out. Uh, now, maybe this is sort of the whole fail fast kind of, of mantra. I, I think we, we have to give some credit insofar as recognising that there there are obviously a bunch of different problems with the way it has worked in the past. Some stuff has to change. We don't always know the answers. It does feel a bit like flip-flopping. I will grant you that because <laughs> he's like, hey, let's give this a go. And everyone's like, oh, it doesn't seem a very good idea. And then he does it and then he's like, oh, that wasn't a very good idea. And we come back. So who knows? Who knows? Louis says, Mastodon is just like any other open source project. It has a lot of advantages and in theory is the right thing to do. But at the end, people go after big enterprises and centralized solutions. And there is a lot to be said for that. I agree with you. Shane says, someone impersonated their account with a verified badge and similar name, then posted a tweet saying insulin is now free. The stock market reacted accordingly. All right, so this is the Eli Lilly thing. All right, so it took the 2.2% hit because the, the market believed that a product that they sell was now going to be free. But also, how stupid are people? <laughs> like, if, you, if you're like, I saw a Twitter account and it had a blue tick and it said something and I sold my stock because of that. So, Moving on to other stupid stuff. HTML email signatures. Holy shit, there's something stupid. So as part of trying to be more professional... 
<laughs> with the have I been paying stuff. If you've been paying attention, we are trying to be more professional. We've got a support platform. We'll talk about the API keys in a second. Um, we're trying to put some things in some nice fancy documents. And we said, you know, like we should actually get, this is Charlotte and I, we should actually do like an HTML signature. And Charlotte's like, oh, look, it's easy. There's these websites with templates for HTML signatures. And having gone somewhat down this road in the past, I was like, you think it's easy because it looks easy and you've been able to go and use signatures before and use word templates before, but you're opening the gates of hell by getting me to try and create an HTML email signature. But because I'm an idiot, I'm like, oh, no, HTML. I've done HTML for ooh, 20, 27 years now. Like, I can work this out. What a pain in the ass this is. Where do you even begin? Um, forget everything you know about good HTML markup. And I, I knew this was a problem. I was trying to explain to Charlotte. It's like, once upon a time, there was this thing called Front Page, Microsoft Front Page, and it created the worst HTML known to man, yet we persisted with it. And now when you go to Word and you get one of these templates, that's what it creates. And I look at it and there's like all of these like MSO style sheets or something, which make no sense whatsoever. And why do I have 500 lines for something like a basic? I can cut this down. I'll do a little bit of CSS, a little bit of V-line on the tables. Job done. We'll be good to go. It's a nightmare, and I think that where it especially becomes a nightmare is Outlook has some really, really screwy formatting stuff, but a lot of people use Outlook, and then you put it on iOS, and the thing that looked right in Outlook now doesn't look right in iOS. And even something simple like let's get a series of images that are all the same size to vertically align at the same level, you know, for example, a bunch of social icons, and then they don't do it. So you have to try and design in a way that, vertical alignment isn't important and there are ways to do this right uh and then you've got you've got to use tables because you just can't use like normal css grid layouts or things like that so you're using tables but then depending on the padding on the table sometimes it starts chopping off the images and um, anyway i don't have an html signature <laughs> that, that's where i am at the moment now a number of people and this is Something I sometimes find, like sometimes I raise an issue and then you see a trend in the responses. And the trend was, look at MJMLIO. What is it? M MJML. Uh, MJML.io. The only framework that makes responsive email easy and it's open source. Join the community on Slack. So I've sort of made a note of that. I thought I'll come back to it after my travels and see if I can fix the damn thing. But it is exceedingly painful to do something that should be easy. And yes, I could go back to plain text, but there is stuff that I want to put in an HTML email because professionalism, it's that simple. Okay, Matt says, what are your thoughts on ML considerations that are now more proliferated in creating fake accounts? ML considerations, machine learning considerations. But I think the underlying issue here is the proliferation, proliferation occurrence <laughs> of fake accounts. It, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because fake accounts are a problem. And we've just seen with this Eli Lilly uh, example here, it, it can have a financial impact. It can have an emotional impact. We've certainly seen fake accounts set up to, to impersonate people. Now, I, th I think Musk's sentiment is good and that he's been talking about things like parody accounts. He's like, parody accounts are fine but they must say in the title that it's a parody account. Okay, I'm good with that. Now, 
of course, parody is not meant to be, not really <laughs> meant to be malicious. It's a little bit different to a fake account that's intended to impersonate someone. But you get into this realm, which is, do we want to, to avoid fake accounts, we need to do some sort of verification. If we do some sort of verification, what are we verifying? Does it mean that people can no longer have anonymous accounts where there might be good legitimate, per Swift on security, love Swift on security. I don't want to know who the person is. I just like the account. I don't need to know that they are that an identity behind it. Now you could argue, okay, well maybe they just need to prove that they are the real Swift on security. And then if they create an account somewhere else, they've just got to somehow prove they're the same one. I don't have a problem with not being able to identify individuals behind accounts, not when they're doing good things. I think once they go off the rails, it's a different story. Uh, but yeah, like it's, it, it is a problem. Now I noticed an interesting thing and I tweeted this the other day. Uh, if you go to analytics.twitter.com, if you're a Twitter account owner, you can see for the last 28 days, your number of tweets, tweet impressions, profile visits, mentions, and followers. Now I have 211,000 followers. In the last month, it has dropped by 487. And somewhere in the middle of that 28 day period, I was, normally I will get between, let's say one and 3,000 new followers in a month. And it goes up, 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 and it gets halfway through and then it just suddenly goes down. And I've seen this before when there has been like a great bot cleansing by Twitter. In fact, I remember at one time, I think I lost about 10,000 accounts pretty much overnight because obviously they were bots. So I am curious as to what caused this, but I do think it predates a lot of people creating Mastodon accounts because it's from two weeks ago. And I think a lot of the Mastodon stuff was really about a week ago. And I would also imagine that for most people creating Mastodon accounts, they're not killing the Twitter account. They might just be like, look, I'm going to put this to bed. I'm sure there are some that do just because delete Facebook, <laughs> but it is an odd trend. So I'm not quite sure why that is. Uh, Frank says, what happened with text-only emails in the world? Well, lots of things happened with text-only emails in the world. In fact, this raises another interesting issue I'll talk about. Um, first of all, emojis. <laughs> Some people want to have an emoji. Now, predating emojis, we wanted to be able to write words and you could click on the word and you could go somewhere without having to put a big clunky URL off the end of it uh, for exactly the same reason that we don't have just plain text web pages. And also for exactly the same reason, companies want to be able to brand. Like, I think you know all of this and maybe it's a little bit of a a, um, a rhetorical, what happened to text-only emails, but there are all of these good reasons. Now, I'll give you a couple of reasons for me personally. Uh, so for Charlotte and I running Have I Been Pwned, I want to be able to have a photo of us individually, not like together <laughs> in the email signature. I find to my eye that adds a lot of personality. When I get that from other people, I'm like, okay, right, cool. That person. Uh, it also reinforces the same image that I have everywhere else. And it's a similar thing uh, for Charlotte. I like that idea. Uh, I like being able to have easily accessible social profiles. If I send someone an email and they're like, I actually want to see who this guy is. Click on LinkedIn icon, you're off to LinkedIn. So there are valid, valid use cases for I'd like to be able to have the Have I Been Pwned logo in there. Valid use case for it, but it is a it is a kludge of different problems. It's not just the HTML markup problem. We've got problems with things like, I realize this is wrong just as I'm saying it, 
We've got problems with not being able to read the URL that is behind a hyperlink. But of course, humans can't read URLs very well anyway, so it's kind of pointless. Um, we've also got problems with the whole premise of particularly organizations sending URLs in emails and people clicking them. Someone sent me an email the other day, actually. They said, look, aren't we trying to condition... This is one of the things I was talking to the AFP about the other day. Aren't we trying to condition people from not clicking links in URLs? It's like, well, yes we would like to do that because a lot of phishing comes through by that channel, but they're also really, really handy. Uh, and some, I mean, let's say there's an unsubscribe link in a URL, in an email rather. Uh, you're not going to say to people, if you would like to unsubscribe from this email, independently go and figure out the URL of this website, go to there, type your email address in, then you, oh, now we're back to getting another email and then clicking on a link because you've got to verify it. Or here's like your unique unsubscribe number in the original email, go to there. No, you're going to have a link that's got some sort of a nonce in it. You click on it and then you go there and it unsubscribes you. What a mess. Shane says, ideally, people would be using multi-part and including both HTML and plain text. That's what all the HTML, uh, all, all the have been pwned emails do. So they have both a plain text and an HTML version of them. Not hard to do when you're programmatically sending emails, harder to do when you're writing an email in your email client. Now, Outlook, you know, if I get a, a plain text email from someone, I reply, and then I put in an emoji or something, Outlook will like go, would you like to switch to HTML? And you go, yeah, fine, <laughs> whatever. But on the iOS things, because Apple, it's just all implicit. It just always comes back as HTML, which is interesting. Uh Frank says, once to go off the rails is a different story. <laughs> Elon's verified. Uh, what else is in here? Brennan says, uh, two weeks ago, I deleted my Twitter account. So that's one. Oh, that was you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I've been on Mastodon for years, though. So I wasn't attached to Twitter. Let me move on to something different. What was on my list here? I think we're up to, uh, have I been pwned API keys? Oh, man, this was... This was stressful and it could not have gone better. So I spoke, uh, I think it was last week, about, uh, for a few weeks now, about having API keys with different rate limits and API keys you could purchase annually rather than just monthly coming up. And I have been thinking about this for a long time. And that there are several things that worried me greatly about this whole thing. Now, number one was repricing it. And I was worried that in repricing it, some people would be upset <laughs> because it's the internet. Uh, and I was worried for a couple of reasons. Number one, as everyone would have seen now with the way I've repriced it, the entry level $3.50 a month key, which used to get you one request every one and a half seconds, which is 40 requests a minute. I've moved over to this request per minute nomenclature because it's easier to understand. 40 requests per minute. I basically slashed 75% of those requests off and now it's 10 requests a minute for the same price. And I was waiting for the barrage of upsetness. Now, I have very, very good reasons for doing that, largely just based on the evidence of how people are using it and my theory being that effectively you are getting the people who are using it very, very small amounts, subsidizing and funding the people who are using it large amounts. Uh, that was my rationale. And I was waiting for the barrage of angry people for that. I was also waiting for the barrage of angry people due to the fact that 
there were keys you could pay more money for, therefore it would make money. <laughs> That's obvious. Now, I got exactly zero complaints, zero complaints about it, which I was literally having these discussions with Charlotte. It was like, I really, like I had spoken to a bunch of people beforehand about this. I thought it was going to be all right, but I was waiting for people to be upset and then having to figure out like how upset are they? Do I need to change anything? Is it right enough to get zero people upset? For me, at least is unprecedented. It was amazing. So that's fantastic. I got the, either I got the pricing right or I priced it way too low. <laughs> it's either one of those, but either way, nobody was upset, which is fantastic. And I have seen a really good distribution of people sticking with that $3.50 a month key, which is where the vast majority of people are going to be, or upping to some of the upper levels. And and it's I guess it's a little bit, it's not bell curve, the vast majority of people are doing that 10 RPM key and then a significant fraction less are doing like 50 and then a bunch less are doing 100 and then there's like a very small number that are doing the 500 requests a minute. So there was that. Now, the other bit was the annual versus monthly and that was something where I've seen a lot of people roll over their $3.50 a month to $35 a year, which is 10 times, even though you get 12 months. Now that I was also very happy with. I wasn't worried about people being upset about that. I think most people are actually pretty happy that it reduced their price. So if you're on entry level and you're paying $3.50 for a month, now you're paying $35 a year and you're using well within that rate limit anyway, well, it just got cheaper, which is great. And a lot of people have rolled over to that. Uh, and I've had really, really, really nice feedback from lots of people saying, thank you for doing this at last. I've now only got to do one expense report a year, and it's easier to go and ask once for $35 and what it is 12 times for $3.50. Fun tangential story. I was going to put a tweet thread on this, and I might still do it, but I'll tell you here. When I was at Pfizer, painful memories. <laughs> when I was at Pfizer, this is, about a, this is a procurement story. How exciting can a procurement story be? One of the things that I was trying to do, and this is in, I want to say this is in the 2013 era, around the time I created Have I Been Pwned, I was really trying to drive, so I looked after application architecture for Asia Pacific, so I got to have some decision making about how we built and hosted software. And one of the things I really wanted to do was drive us away from the old uh, sort of shared hosting model where we would get a machine with an ISP and then we would slice it up and we would have our Viagra marketing campaign there and our Lipitor marketing campaign there and it would all be there. I was trying to get away from that and more towards platform as a service and particularly platform as Azure, platform as Azure, <laughs> platform as a service on Azure with the Azure app service. And the figures by my recollection were we were paying in the order of $20,000 a year for one of these virtual machines which we sliced up and by rolling to Azure PaaS we managed to drop it to about $75 a month which is a massive 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 saving it's a huge saving however <laughs> the problem was because procurement they didn't want to pay $75 a month to Microsoft using a credit card they wanted to go through all of these other hoops, which suddenly made $75 a month, not $75 a month. So one of my colleagues, lovely, lovely guy, too lovely, he paid for it with his credit card and didn't get it reimbursed. So every month, Dennis would pay $75 on his credit card 
and not get it reimbursed from the world's largest healthcare company worth billions and billions of dollars because they made it too hard. That's my procurement story. And that's what it's been like for have I been pwned as well, where people are trying to get some stupidly small amount of money reimbursed and it's been too hard. So by virtue of having annual payments and higher rate limits, because believe it or not, sometimes it is easier to spend more money. Now, I'm fine with this. <laughs> if you want to just spend more money for something you don't use anyway because it gets you the key and you can then use that to do something useful, I'm okay with that. But anyway, so a bunch of people have been doing that, which is fantastic. I've also been really carefully watching the uh, API management, so Azure API management, all the requests go through APIM because that does the rate limiting there, that provisions the keys, and then there's just a bit of code to tie it all together in the back end. I've really carefully been watching the utilization of my APIM instance and the number of requests going through. And even though we have done a combination of like massively slash some rate limits and then massively increase others, I actually haven't seen any observable change in traffic since that happened, which is great because I was worried that we might suddenly have either a, a huge number of people getting uh, uh, 403. Well, why would they get 403? Only if their key didn't work. Um, 429, uh, too many requests. Or I would see a huge spike in traffic, which would then have other issues due to the higher rate limit keys. So I'm not seeing it. I'm sure there are micro spikes within individual accounts, but that's such a small part of the overall usage of the system. So super, super happy with that. A couple of very, very minor issues I've had. Um, one issue is that it was not immediately apparent to anyone, including me, that if you were paying your $3.50 a month for a key and you effectively had 40 RPM and then you went, I want to go and get monthly and you went and got monthly, you immediately got dropped to 10 RPM, even though I've grandfathered in the old rate limit for 60 days. So it's not until the start of January where if you're paying your $3.50 a month that your rate limit goes from 40 to 10. So I wanted to give everyone two months so you've got heaps and heaps and heaps of time to respond to those, it is 429, isn't it? Too many requests, uh, or upgrade your plan, or just cancel the service, whatever you want to do. Now, it wasn't immediately clear to people, and it wasn't immediately clear to me because I didn't think it through far enough, that upgrading, upgrading, going from monthly to annually would cause that change to happen immediately. And later on when I thought about it, it became obvious because it's like, well, really what you're doing, and, and the, the Stripe customer portal makes this really, really easy, is you're cancelling your existing tier, you get a credit for the remaining period, and then the credit gets applied to the new plan, so it's not $35, it's, I don't know, $34 or something like that, and then the new plan is on the 10 RPM. So I've ended up having to add some text to the dashboard in Have I Been Pwned, and it just says, look, you're currently on the 40 requests per minute. If you grade upgrade to annually, you will be dropped to 10 right now. Now, that text is only going to be relevant for another, I don't know, I guess 50, 54 days, something like that. And then it'll go away. And the only other issue I had, and this is not my fault, is it looks like Cloudflare had an issue with their connection between their edge nodes and the origin, which would cause an H what was which HTTP was it? It was like a five five two five, uh, a TLS handshake exception. So the TLS handshake was failing on some requests. Uh, now, I tweeted about this at the time. I was like, has anyone else seen this? 
Uh, I had uh, John Grant Cummings from Cloudflare, their CTO, pop up very quickly and unfortunately give me a ticket, uh, which which helped solve the problem. I had to roll from a full strict SSL to flexible, which basically meant rolling from enforcing valid TLS between a Cloudflare edge node and an origin to flexible, which is you can make requests for HTTPS, but if the certificate isn't valid, the request still goes through. Not ideal, not a major thing for a short period of time for a project like this, unless your threat actor is the people that own the pipes in between, which is not really the case with Have I Been Pwned. Uh, all back to normal now. So it was a glitch on their end. They fixed it. But it was kind of annoying because a bunch of people were seeing like a Cloudflare error message. In fact, the reason I first noticed it, I was looking at the Stripe webhooks. Uh, and the webhooks will give you failure reports. So they'll tell you, for example, when someone uh, either signs up and, and we get a new customer created, or when the payment's made, Stripe goes, webhook to have I been pwned, to let have I been pwned? No. And it was getting 529 or 525, whatever it was, back from there. Uh, so that was where I first saw it. All fixed up, all good to go. As far as I know, everything is now 100%. And let me read some comments and then we'll do the hard one. Medibank. Shane says, uh, I've done that before and I wanted to prove out a concept without having to jump through the hoops of accounting. Now, this would have been the story of my poor mate Dennis just paying for the thing. But I think for, for you, Shane, and, and for Dennis, and I've done it before as well, it kind of shows you your passion as well in that, you know, when someone is passionate about their job and they just want to, they just want to feel like they're achieving something, um, you're willing to make that sacrifice. And it might be a small financial sacrifice, but it's also one you shouldn't have to make. And I, I think it's, it's frankly pretty sucky that you have this situation where you as an individual might have to pay $3.50 out of your own pocket because the multinational you're working for can't get their shit together at procurement. Like that's just, that is just stupid. Brendan says, oh, cool, I didn't completely miss the live. No, you didn't. And I have, I have emails from you as well. <laughs> They're there. But uh, as I think you saw, I got preoccupied yesterday. All right, let's talk about Medibank because this is, this is without question, the, I would say, the most impactful data breach that I've been involved in. Uh, and I want to explain why for, for, for many, many reasons. Uh, it, it's a combination of the impact on the individuals, uh, the airtime that it has gotten in the media, the demands on me from media, uh, and I think just the number of issues it raises, particularly since the AFP announcement yesterday as well. So let's let's scroll back and give a little bit of an explanation for everyone. I'm going to make a, a mental note. 46 minutes into the live stream because I want to be able to link to this later on for people that do want more info. Now, Medibank is a private health insurer uh, in Australia. So uh, I, I know that health insurance can be very different in some parts of the world. Hello, America. But in Australia, uh, typically many people have private health insurance on top of the provisions that they would get just by virtue of living here in Australia and getting free health care from the government. Free health care <laughs> from the government. So this is something that is in addition to that. A lot of people have it. Uh, and of course, there's all sorts of different levels of health care and all sorts of different amounts of money you may pay based on various things, how much cover you want, how big your family is, your demographic, your pre-existing conditions. Uh, we went and did a whole bunch of healthcare stuff recently. Okay, we've got two kids, so that impacts it. Uh, Charlotte, who's of childbearing age, so that impacts it. 
We don't have any pre-existing health conditions, so that's good. So on and so forth. Now, we got news, I want to say about three weeks ago, of an incident at Medibank. And it was one of these things where there was a fairly minor announcement, cybersecurity incident, da, 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 and, and then what often happens here is that the scope of an incident is not immediately known. And it is only over the course of time as investigations progress, and then in this case, as a ransom emerges, that the full scope is known. And, and this is what's gradually happened. Like, it's just so, oh, this this probably isn't good. Oh, it's worse. It's worse. And it just keeps going and going and going and going. And this week has been horrific. So we knew that there was a ransom. Uh, we knew that there were people uh, claiming to have Medibank data. Medibank was being very, very transparent, I think, in their communications. Uh, as we now know, and it is in the press, we can talk about it, CyberCX, the company I mentioned, I just spent a bunch of time with uh, with the folks in Canberra as well. We're doing a, a, some instant response to them, with them, uh, obviously assisting them with things like their communication, uh, which I think, to be honest, is why it was so good compared to, <laughs> say, Optus before them. So we, we start seeing more information from Medibank about what they think is impacted and then there's a Tor Hidden Service website that the alleged attackers uh, are posting to. And and the, the chronology here and what's happened just over the last week and really just in this, this weekday week is I believe it was uh, Monday morning we've had Medibank come out and say we will not pay the ransom. Now, this is after I think at least a couple of weeks of talking about the fact that there is a ransom uh, and saying that they're ongoing discussions. Now, they hadn't said publicly that they weren't paying it. Uh, Monday, they're like, no, we're not paying it. So maybe it was Sunday, early this week. So then later that night, we get this website pops up, says uh, Medibank's not paying the ransom. They've got 24 hours, otherwise we'll start dumping data. Uh, and, and true to form, 24 hours later, we start getting data dumped. Uh, and this tour hidden service has gone and dumped a bunch of data and updated their website to refer to the fact that there's now information out there circulating. Now, I'm just going to go and find my, my tweet thread on this because I kind of feel like the, the best uh, justice I can do this is to read through that chronology because this will also remind me exactly what happened. There's so much that's happened with this this week. Um, where are we? Medibank, Medibank, Medibank. That's in here somewhere. Oh, man. And then we've got to talk about Russia. Let's see. Troy Hunt. Yeah, this is one of the things apparently Elon is going to fix. He's going to make search in Twitter <laughs> better. <laughs> I think we'll all agree that uh, search in Twitter does need to be a lot better. Okay. So here we are. I tweeted this 5 a.m. three days ago. As threatened, the hackers responsible for the Medibank ransom... Have begun dumping data. This is about as bad as we feared it would get. And what they've actually said here uh, on this dark website is a man who has committed a mistake and doesn't correct it is committing another mistake. Confucius. Data will be published in 24 hours. Uh, and they've got, they had a YouTube link here to an Aussie comedian doing a, like a fake apology for Medibank. Now they say here, looking back that data is stored in not very understandable format, table dumps, will take some time to sort it out 
and we posting a small part of the data in human-readable format, sample and JSON file. Also, we post all raw data. We'll continue posting partial data partially, need some time to do it pretty. We'll continue posting data partially, including confluence source codes, list of stuff and some files obtained from MIDI file systems from different hosts, negotiation process inside leak. Uh, so this was the threat, and then 24 hours later, they've posted two other Onion addresses um, with mirrors. So they've obviously uh, given themselves some redundancy there, and they've started dumping data. Now, again, this is a health insurer. So there's a lot of discussion that has come out about what data should companies be retaining, data minimization or all the rest of it. Now, th this was a very, very good discussion I have after Optus because Optus had a lot of identity data after having already proven identity and also a lot of retained data after someone was no longer a customer. So that was a good discussion to have about what do they actually need to have. For Medibank, when we look at the data that started getting exposed, so they dumped a bunch of JSON files, some zip files with a lot of CSVs in them, name, phone number, email address, uh, physical address, gender, date of birth. It is hard to look at any of that data and say Medibank shouldn't have had this. Because what does a health insurer need? A health insurer needs to know how to contact you. They need to know your age because that's a very important part of your premium. They need to know your gender. They need to know very personal information about you as part of the service that they operate. So as much as we can have a discussion about don't provide your date of birth to some website which just asks for it because you're buying a T-shirt, or as I've heard in the news a lot, you know, when you go into a shop and you buy something and they're like, give me your email address, we'll email your receipt, you don't need to provide that, that's up to you. We can't really have the discussion that Medibank had things that they shouldn't have because everything that's been leaked so far was very valid to the purpose of the service. Necessary for the purpose of the service. Now, reading through my commentary on this, um, and it's a combination of my commentary and other things I've seen and read, but they also dumped uh, a whole bunch of images of the negotiation process between the ransomware crew and Medibank. And that was kind of interesting for a couple of reasons. So, so number one, when, when you sort of read through it and you have a look at the dates, and incidentally, I'm not encouraging anyone to go and look at this. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But obviously, there was a goal, certainly on Medibank's behalf, to extend the period of negotiation for as long as possible. Now, uh, there was there was a Q&A program. So we, we have a, a program uh, that's quite popular in Australia called Q&A, where the, the host will have a, a studio audience and a panel of experts. And Alistair McGibbon, uh, previous uh, Australian Federal Police, previous government roles in cybersecurity, and now on CyberCX, uh, another person I spent some time with the other day, was on Q&A. And you know, as a previous Federal Police officer and someone who spent a lot of time um, dealing with precisely these sort of parties, he said, look, you, you never rule out paying a ransom in part because it allows you to have some dialogue and some period of time to figure out what they have and how to deal with it, which I thought was really fascinating. I hadn't thought about it in that context before. Uh, and it was evident when looking at the dialogue, and I'm not sure how much he or CyberCX were involved in it, but clearly it was consistent with what he said on Q&A. 
there was obviously value in extending that time period. And you get that impression from reading the uh, the ransom discussion. I also got the impression from reading it that everything that Medibank said, they said with the expectation that it may be public at some time. It's a little pro-life tip there. <laughs> it's a really good way of living your life. If you work on the, on the expectation, particularly on any sort of volatile discussion, that it could be seen by other parties at some time, I, I find that's a, a worse to live by. Uh, you also get the impression from the ransomware crew that it is just business. Now, one of the things that I've been trying to get across a lot in the media interviews that I've done is to try and think of ransomware as a business. Now, that might be a hard thing to do because they're a criminal enterprise and they are literally destroying people's lives at the moment. But in order to understand their motives and how they operate, you've got to think of it in terms of how would a normal IRL, in real life, mainstream business run? Uh, Well, they have an asset. In this case, that asset is other people's data. Uh, What is the highest and best use of the asset? How do we maximize the return on it? They're also a business in that they have staff, they have employees, they have overheads, they have people who want promotions, they have people that go to other companies, rival companies, they poach other people. So as we're starting to have attribution discussions now as well, it is not just as simple as someone sitting in their bedroom adding one to a number. That was Optus. (laughs) That's a different story. So they've dumped a whole bunch of personal data. Uh, Now, a lot of the medical-related data in there is codes. So there are codes that refer to different procedures. Now, I'm not saying anything that hasn't been all over the press by now as well, just to be clear. I'm being very cautious of that. Now, the, the problem is, is that it, I, I look at these codes almost like a foreign key. Now, think about the databases that you have probably created in the past. Uh, you have a foreign key. It might be a number. It might be a combination of letters and numbers. The key in and of itself doesn't tell you anything. But there is a table somewhere that matches the key to something much more descriptive. And clearly, as people start to figure out what these keys relate to, then you start to figure out what the procedures or the pre-existing conditions, etc., were. So anyway, this is back on uh, three days ago now. Uh, all of this data uh, ends up, well, the first set of data, and all of it, ends up being dumped uh, the morning that Charlotte and I are going to Canberra. So the, the, the timing of it was just kind of crazy. In there, they dump a naughty.json file and a, I think they call it good.json file. And it looks like about 100 different people in each. Uh, and apparently the naughty JSON file was a list of more prominent people or as the as the ransomware crew had threatened earlier on, uh, people who might be part of the LGBT community or uh, famous people or other people that, I think to put it simply, they felt that they could get more impact and more leverage over by specifically targeting them. And, and this is, you know, even when they made that threat probably a couple of weeks ago now, you sort of started to get the sense that this is going to be really, really, really nasty. And, uh, you know, someone made a comment. I can't remember who it was. It might have been one of the, the folks I caught up with, but I'm pretty sure it was in the press somewhere where they said, look, uh, it might have been Ch- uh, Siren, Kieran Martin, where they said, for many ransomware crews, things like health are off limits. You know, even even criminals have standards. These guys... Nothing's off limits. Absolutely nothing's off limits. And I I think we sort of got that first indication of it when they said they're going to start targeting these people. And we saw that come out in that naughty list. Um, Now, 
What we've subsequently learned over the following days is more and more stuff has been dumped bit by bit. Now, one of the things we learned, and I think this was about two days ago now, is that apparently the, the ask, the ransom, was $10 million US dollars. Um, why it's US from what we now know as Russians asking for money from Australians, not sure. But then again, I'm charging USD for API keys, so how can I talk? <laughs> it tends to be the global currency. So they'd, last, they'd asked for $10 million, and then they said, we will discount it to $9.7 million because we have 9.7 million of your customers. Therefore, it's just $1 per customer. Good business, $1 a customer, you can justify that. And again, when we come back to the business side of things, like if you were to put something in context and say, for a massive publicly listed company like Medibank, there is a cost of $1 per customer, they're right. It doesn't seem much. Now, that, of course, that's not saying that Medibank should be paying that, but you can see how they positioned that as a business. Now, as we go through the list here, as data's being dumped, you start to see people going, where can I find the data? It's like, don't find the data. <laughs> don't go and look for the data. And one of the things I'm really worried about and I'm yet to see much evidence of this, but I'm sure it'll happen, is I'm worried about people trying to go and seek out that data and have other things happen. So I made a comment in here somewhere, I compared it to the MH17 flight that got downed. Uh, after that, we saw scams trying to get people to run malicious software because they would find out information about MH17. When people try to seek out information like this, they inevitably find things that make things even worse. So I'm really worried about people trying to seek out the data and either finding themselves fished, malware, trying to figure out how do I get the Tor browser, then how do I find the Onion address, then how do I browse the dark web. And even if they do do that and they do it all, it's going to say legitimately, but, that, but they, they actually are successful in doing that and they find the correct website and they find the data, well, now it's just replicated. And what you've got is millions of other people's data as well as your data. A little tangential thing here. For the longest time, and I, I think it was after Ashley Madison in 2015, this penny really dropped. I would really, really like to see organisations who've had data breaches securely and in a strongly verified fashion. I don't know how we'll do all that, but let's just agree that that's the way you do it. Be able to show people this is precisely what has been leaked about you. Precisely. I'll tell you, I don't want to do that without my being pined. I don't want that responsibility. But I would love, let's say it was actually Madison, to be able to say, here is your record. This is exactly what other people see about you because that's what people are now asking about Medibank. So I'm worried about people seeking that out. I'm worried about the scams that will come as a result. I'm worried about the shady versions of Have I Been Pwned that will come as a result. And I'm sure that we will see all these things. Now, someone here as well has tweeted, someone who... Um, in fact, this is someone on Infosec. Thought Exchange Mastodon instance. Glenn Arrowsmith says, "I found my data. They have four of my previous home addresses and dates correlating to claims." So this was verification of the data that was leaked being consistent with the real world data. Now, what else is on here? Because things go downhill. We get to what's today? Day Saturday. We get to Thursday morning, and. This ransomware crew has created a file called abortions.csv, which is exactly what it sounds like it is. And they've added this to their list, and it contained hundreds of rows 
of of uh, of customer records. Now, interestingly, uh, because gender's on there, both male and female, so I would assume that they relate to policyholders where an abortion was on the policy. But you know, as I've quote tweeted someone here who tweeted about it. Um, he says pure evil, and I like it, it. It is. That's just the most equally bad thing to the thing they did the next day, which we'll come back to in a moment. So you, you sort of look at it and go, well, like, why? Well, you know, they're not paying the ransom. You're not going to get it. Uh, and almost certainly it is because it, it does send a strong signal to the next company they ransom. Hey, whatever company it is, and, and incidentally, let me get the name right, because <laughs> this morning we have seen news, not yet verified as far as I know, but news that, was it Deutsche Bank? Uh, I don't know, it's a particular bank, uh, Deutsche Bank. I just read the tweet. Deutsche Bank allegedly breached and for sale by the same access broker that sold access to Medibank. <laughs> so the worse they make this for Medibank, I imagine the better they believe that positions them to get paid a ransom in future, which again is absolutely horrible because they need to make it as bad as possible to give their next customer customer confidence that they're going to deliver on the threat. So they posted this abortions file. Yesterday, they posted one called boozy.csv and allegedly boozy is people that have had uh, treatment for drug or alcohol abuse. And, and again, like they're, they're just picking the most vulnerable people where they know this will have the greatest impact as a deterrent to the next company who doesn't pay the ransom. And you start to think, based on this pattern, how far do you go? And I'm not even going to say the things that I could imagine they could do because I don't want to give anyone ideas. But just think about you're sitting on this data. What is the most misery that you can inflict on vulnerable people? And that's what this feels like. Let me read the comments because then I want to come back and talk about AFP yesterday. Um, okay. I think we just jumped straight down to the uh, Medibank stuff. Uh-huh. John4634 says, how do you think Medibank could do disclosure to customers that only have a physical address or landline on file? Uh, send them a letter or call their phone. <laughs> that's, I guess that's the only way. And actually confirm that the customer received the notification, i.e. moved house. There's a good question there about is there any burden on Medibank or any other company who's been breached to confirm that their customer has received the communication. I'm, I'm not not sure that there is. And, and maybe it's a question of what is a reasonable effort to go to to notify them. Brennan says, is there a chance that it could be another kid or group of kids like this? Uh, I believe you reckon it's the case with Optus. So even before we saw the AFP attribution yesterday, there was really, really clearly uh, some massive differences in this. So that the Optus thing, <laughs> first of all, Allegedly, based on reports, and we think there's a high degree of confidence is accurate, it was insecure direct object reference. It was a URL with a phone number. You change the number, you get someone else's data. That is the most trivial 
of vulnerabilities and how someone didn't find it earlier, I don't know. So the sophistication was extraordinarily low. Someone popped up on a popular hacking forum on the clear web, not on the dark web, and put out a very childish statement and later on withdrew the whole thing and apologised and said they're sorry. And it really felt like they'd been sent to their room to think about what they'd done. Like that's the impression that we all got. Very unsophisticated, very poorly handled. Uh, I would hazard a guess, and I've heard um, uh, Patrick Gray speculate this on the Risky Biz podcast as well, that the AFP worked out who it is and went and spoke to their parents and (laughs) that's settled things down very quickly. This one here was clearly a lot more sophisticated in terms of the way access was was granted. Now, all I've read is what's on the media. Um, Medibank has said it had to do with a compromised account. Not sure yet whether it was reused credentials, phished, uh, malware. I've read references to access to a VPN. And then, of course, an exfiltration of a large amount of data, not just via HTTP with changing numbers in a URL. And then, obviously, a very, very targeted ransom that has gone on for a long period of time with a lot of negotiation. And this is before we got to the AFP um, attribution yesterday. Steve says, 10 million doesn't sound like much considering how much this is going to cost Medibank. Now, you're right. Now, if you were in a position to sit here and say, we got an option. We can either go down the route we're going down at the moment where it's an absolute mess, or we could pay $10 million and it's all gone away. Easy, easy solution. <laughs> However, and there, here again is is one of the big differences in, in what's happening lately with ransomware versus earlier on. Now keep in mind, ransomware goes back to the 80s. So we had the AIDS Trojan back in, I think, about 89. You would get it on a floppy disk. You would have to send a cashier's check to Panama in order to get the key to unlock your machine. Now, we had ransomware as a tax against availability. So you would get infected. Your machine would get encrypted. Everything would be encrypted. Files are encrypted. You can no longer access them unless you have a key, and that was the extent of the attack availability. If you bought the key and you unlocked your files, you could look at it and go, well, I've got my files back. They have delivered on the promise. And, of course, it's good business to deliver on the promise because that gets you repeat customers. Now, somewhere around the last few years, we've really seen this start to pivot so that now it's not just a tax against availability, it's also a tax against confidentiality. We have encrypted your files and we have your files. It's the double whammy. You've got to pay to decrypt your files and you will know if that works because suddenly you have your files. And they could send proofs where you'd get a key to just decrypt one or two files and you go, oh, look, it really does work. But how do you know they've deleted the files? Now, in the Medibank situation, we've seen them state, we've seen the uh, ransomware crew state that they they exfilled a bunch of data. They did not have the opportunity to encrypt it. So this is just purely an attack against confidentiality, which puts it back in the normal data breach realm. If you were to pay the ransom, what guarantee do you have that the files no longer exist? And there's a really easy answer to that. Absolutely none. And this is why it's such a difficult thing for an organization like Medibank to have a ransomware discussion when it's an attack against confidentiality as opposed to just an attack against availability. I didn't end up tweeting this, but I was just doing a quick Google because I remember there were multiple occasions where even a police department had paid ransoms in the past. I think there was a comment from someone at the FBI some years ago about it can make sense to pay the ransom. 
and, and again, when we're talking about attacks against confidentiality, and this might have been what Alistair McGibbon was, was alluding to on Q&A the other night as well, there are cases where that will make sense. It was never going to make sense here. It was just never going to make sense because you would never have a guarantee that they would have deleted the files. Now, of course, the position that's the counter-argument is that not only have they not deleted the files, and maybe if the ransom had been paid, they wouldn't have spread them out all over, out all over the dark web, which really means all over the internet now. But you just don't know. And for ever in a day, you as an organisation and as the individuals in this breach would be wondering, is my data going to pop up one day? So paying the ransom was just never, ever going to be an option. Shane says, I have to imagine it's less about the money itself than it is about creating incentive for the ransomers. So there's that argument as well. Like if you pay the ransom, it will incentivize others to come and ransom you. Paying the ransom in Australia is not illegal. You can pay the ransom. There is some discussion here about whether it should be made illegal. Because if you make it illegal then no one is allowed to pay the ransom without breaking the law and there is an argument that that drives up the marketplace for ransomware crews. I'm not sure if that would work or not. I would imagine that there are still ransomware crews that would put a lot of pressure on a company to pay the ransom even though it might be illegal and try to give them all sorts of options to do it under the radar. I don't know. Let's see how that pans out. So last thing to talk about. Yesterday, the AFP came out and attributed it to Russia, which is... Absolutely not surprising at all in terms of Russia being their origin. It has been for many, many years. Uh, we know that ransomware crews not only get safe haven there, but ransomware crews also actively avoid targeting anything in Russia so that they can remain friendly in their home country. It was kind of interesting to hear that attribution come out. And a few things have happened since then. So first of all, they said uh, Russia. They said uh, a group of likely affiliates. Affiliate was a word that came up over and over and over again in the ransomware discussions that were leaked between the ransomware crew and Medibank. And it's, I was sort of explaining to, to the media, it's, it's a little bit like, it's like Tupperware. <laughs> you know, it's like there's a company that makes the Tupperware and then there are individuals that go out and they sell the Tupperware and they get a share and then Tupperware gets a share. Uh, and, and this is a way of scaling a business. And there are affiliates that can do the same thing with ransomware, with malware, with botnets, with other all sorts of digitally legal things. They have said, the AFP has said, they know who the individual, I forget the word they use, who the individual or individuals are, but they won't be named at the moment. Now, there are a couple of things that, that I think were very nuanced about this. So when the AFP made the statement, they in no way were derogatory towards Russia as a country. Now, of course, we're doing this in an era of Ukraine invasion as well. A year ago, this would have been awkward. Now, it's very, very awkward. <clears throat> so, the AFP didn't throw Russia under the bus explicitly. So there was nothing in there about Russia is safe harboring criminals and things like that. It was very much like we're going to work with uh, the likes of Interpol and the global law enforcement community to try and bring these people to justice, which is the way that we would hope it would work. Of course, the, the problem here is that it's going to be difficult to go along and say, hey, um, you know, Russian police, could you please hand over the bad guys? Uh, incidentally, we are supporting the country that you have invaded through all sorts of other means. 
that that would be an interesting room to be in, wouldn't it, when that discussion happens? Now, later yesterday, we've subsequently had the Russian embassy in Australia come out and be critical of the AFP, saying that the AFP should have actually come and spoken to them first before going out publicly with an announcement. That seems like a reasonable statement. Like, I hate to throw Russia a bone here, but that seems like a reasonable statement to make. However, it has become so massively politicised now that I'm sure there are very good reasons why either A, the AFP didn't do that, or B, they did it, but that message isn't coming through from the Russian embassy. And we're, we're now sort of pivoting from a, a space where it's cybersecurity, it's ransomware, it's, it's things that I have a reasonable understanding of to things that are frankly completely beyond my comprehension. One of the things that I, I, I didn't like yesterday is right after, and in fact I screen grabbed this on my phone because I wanted to wanted to refer to it here. So right after we've had this, uh, this attribution, we're seeing news headlines. So the front page of the news app today on my phone says, capable, active and aggressive, Australians warned of more Medibank-style attacks and there's a photo of Putin. Now the headline yesterday that pissed me off for the same sort of reasons. Let's see if I can find where this is, because uh, I tweeted this. It says, AFP confirms Russia responsible, and the same photo of Putin. I vehemently dislike this, and then I got into Twitter arguments with people, because it's Twitter. I vehemently dislike this, because there is a massive difference between Russia responsible, photo of Putin, and people within Russia responsible. Now, I'll give you people's counter-arguments in a moment, but the, the reason that is so important is at the moment, the way it is represented is the AFP wants cooperation with law enforcement in Russia to bring criminals to justice. And let's imagine it was someone in the US doing this. And we go, yeah, it's like Anthony Albanese is going to get on the phone with Joe Biden. They're going to talk about it. They're going to agree that ransomware is bad and they're going to arrest the people and they're going to send them back to Australia. And this in a perfect world is the way it would work. That would be a very, very different situation if the headline was USA responsible for and a photo of Biden up there. No, you've just got bad guys in the country. Now, we all know it is much more nuanced than that. And the part of the criticism I got back, usually with people with Ukrainian flags in their profile, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. I do wonder whether it allows them to look at this objectively or whether they come at it with the lens of already being enormously aggrieved with, with Russia, uh, which again, like it's perfectly reasonable to be enormously aggrieved with Russia at the moment, but I don't like the idea of turning this into what reads like a state-sponsored attack, which is a very, very, very different thing for all sorts of very good reasons. So I think the challenge now is to see where this goes. So what if, what if the AFP does know who it is and they're able to communicate that via the Interpol channels or whatever it may be back to Russian law enforcement, what are the chances of those people being extradited? I mean, it's, it's basically zero, isn't it? Now, we have seen cases recently, particularly in the US, where Russian Chinese nationals have been named as being part of cyber attacks, uh, named photos up there. And I think this is what the AFP would really like to get to. Like, let's have photos of these guys up there. But then again, what are you going to do? Like, unless they take a holiday to Thailand and you pick them up there, all you're doing is naming people. Now, incidentally, uh, today was the first day for, th uh, I guess, the last four days where there has not been a dump of more data. So the original set, the abortion set, the boozy set, 
nothing more today. I don't know if that's coincidental or not. Uh, I would love to think that there are scared shitless ransomware crews running around now because the AFP is onto them. I would love to think that. I don't think that is the case. Uh, I think that these people are operating with an assumption of impunity. Time will tell. Time will tell. Let's have a look at the comments. Uh, Tom says, just a quick comment. This is the most interesting live stream I've watched in a really, really long time. Thanks. Well, it's, it's a dark topic, but thank you. Steve says, how did the breach occur? Was it compromised credentials? Yeah, so I mentioned this a bit earlier, Steve. So Medibank has said compromised credentials. We've seen uh, mention of VPN. Uh, we've also seen mention from Medibank that the credentials belong to an operator with privileged access, of which there must be some, because there must be some operators somewhere that are able to see someone's personal details, their claims history, their pre-existing conditions. That is the nature of running a healthcare insurance company. Um, I think I am, in the past, I have certainly been, I don't want to say eager, but I haven't had any hesitation in calling out companies for bad infosec. I think I made a name for myself for doing that, particularly where companies then haven't handled things well after, say, there's been a data breach. Something about this Medibank situation, though, makes me enormously sympathetic for Medibank uh, as a company. Now, almost certainly there have been mistakes that they would have made in order to enable this to happen in the first place. But I, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that, that they are absolutely the victims in this, uh, along with all the individuals that have had their data exposed. I don't think that the calls for, you know, the CEO should just resign, like, right at the worst possible time when they really need strong leadership and guidance. I, I don't think that that is the right discussion to be having at the moment. I would love to see at some point in the future information on exactly what happened. And we may look at it then and go, well, there are a few things I could have done better, but it wasn't a number in a URL. You know, like this is not Optus. Uh, I suspect we'll find that they were very sophisticated actors. I, I don't think there's any any doubt about that at the moment. Uh Obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, the controls that Medibank had in place were insufficient. Were they completely terrible or, or might we have looked at them at the time and gone, well, this, look, this seems reasonable based on what we know? Uh, I don't know. That's the sort of stuff that we want to see come out. Part of the reason we want to see this come out is not to throw Medibank under the bus, but so that we can learn and do this better in the future. Because if nothing else, what Optus and Medibank and the little ones in between, there's other data breaches in Australia since these, what we want to do is, is figure out how to how to improve the situation. Like we've got massive, massive airtime for InfoSec in Australia at the moment, and it is the best time ever for us to to start to discuss how we try and improve things and avoid this problem in the first first place uh, in future. And even our PM was out there yesterday going, "Look, Australian companies have got to do better at their cyber," uh, and that that is hopefully going to be a positive outcome out of an otherwise absolutely atrocious situation. So look, folks, I think I'm going to leave it there because I've been going for a very long time today, but this has been a, a, just a massively dominant story in Australia. I'm sure that by the time I do this update, probably six days from now, I'll try and get back on schedule and do it on Fridays. There will be more to share. Uh, look, until then, I, I'm just hoping that there's no more data that appears uh, along these lines. But um I'm sure there'll be something that happens between now and then. All right, folks, I'm going to go and enjoy my weekend. I uh, hope you have an awesome one. See you next week.